The opinions expressed in the Palace of Glittering Delights are mine and mine alone. No one would be stupid enough to hold them. The things discussed in the Palace of Glittering Delights may lead to spoilers if you have not seen the topic of today's episode. There may also be occasional ranting and swearing. Don't say I didn't warn you. Hello everybody and welcome back. I'm returning to the amazing Spider-Man, everybody's favourite topic. Specifically the run of comics written by Len Wein and drawn by Ross Andrew from 1976. This is part two, covering issues 157 through 160 and annual number 10. Part one was back in episode 199. And if you're new to the show, thanks to the new trailer that I have created, I have done episodes covering every issue written by Stan Lee and the David Michelinie and Todd McFarlane run. Go and listen to them. If you've listened to them, listen to them again. Or tell someone who hasn't listened to them and tell them to go and listen to them. Because that would be great. We're picking up where we left off with the aforementioned issue 157, The Ghost That Haunted Octopus. They don't really do prosaic titles like that anymore, do they? The cover is Dr. Octopus balancing precariously on the skids of a helicopter, beating on Spider-Man and saying, Dr. Octopus has returned from the dead, web-slinger. Let's see if you can do the same. No idea why Dr. Octopus has that accent. There's no signature, but Mike's Amazing World credits it to Jazzy John Romita. It's a decent cover, if not spectacular, or indeed amazing. The background isn't very well defined enough, although the primary images are striking. Those that remember that Doc Ock blew up real good back in issue 131 would be intrigued to see how the bad Doctor has returned. We open with setup. Spider-Man is plunging into the nighttime waters of the Hudson River, looking for the watery grave of that abomination unto man, the Spider-Mobile. For those who don't recall, Spider-Man was asked by Corona Motors to manufacture a Spider-Man car for sale as a toy. Spider-Man asked Johnny Storm to build it for him, but it all went awry and ended up in the river. This storyline mirrored real life, whereby Marvel were asked to give Spider-Man a car for selling on the toy market, presumably due to the Batmobile still selling well, despite this now being 10 years removed from the Adam West television show of the 60s. However, writer Jerry Conway thought this was a stupid idea, and treated it as such. However, Corona now want a return on their investment, demanding the car back or they'll sue. Exactly how they would go about suing Spider-Man is not mentioned and something I would have liked to have seen. Andrew's art as Spidey searches the briny depths is excellent, as are the colours by Glynis Ween. Sadly, Spider-Man only finds a wing mirror and thus a major plot point cometh. Were, oh were, has the Spider-Mobile gone? A mystery for another day and the end of this podcast. Spider-Man resurfaces and is greeted by the pistols of New York's finest, who Spidey dumps in the drink. Again, it's no wonder the police hate him. Over in subplot land, Flash Thompson has dropped by to pick up Harry from his therapy session. Weirdly, Harry's therapist is Dr. Banning, which isn't who he will turn out to be in future issues. Mm, a mighty Marvel no prize from 1976 to a listener who can tell me why this mistake isn't a mistake. This shows nice growth for Flash, being willing to help his friend like this. However, his magnanimous act is cast aside for a pretty girl. Liz Allen also arrives to see Harry, and given a choice of hot blondes, Harry plums for Liz. Who can blame him? Flash, however is dumbstruck. More could have been made of this. 
Flash and Liz have history, as they dated in high school, so some jealousy or even some flirty banter could have made this scene a bit more fun. Still, it's a cute bit as it is, setting up the future, something Ween excelled at. Over at the May Parker place, our bedraggled and no doubt smelly doctor is amazed that May kept a parcel of clothes for him. He takes to the shower while she makes a pot of tea, and we shall take a moment to marvel at the fact that Dr. Octopus showers in his spectacles. Being homeless has been good for his figure, if nothing else. He looks quite trim when he dresses, even if his tastes, a green jumpsuit with orange gloves, boots and belt, have not changed. The doorbell rings an hour later, and I really don't want to think what May and Otto got up to in that hour. It's May's good old nephew Peter, here with a bucket of the Colonel's finest to share with the woman who is practically his mother. Imagine Peter's surprise when he's greeted by a gentleman caller. And even worse, that gentleman is his archenemy, Dr Otto Octavius. Ween taps into the soap opera level drama perfectly, and seeing the normally garrulous Peter Parker struck dumb is joyous to behold. In a moment I find incredibly funny, Peter and Otto share a chicken bucket, whilst Otto tells Peter how he survived being on an island that blew up. Now, let's give Ween total credit here. He retcons a previous story perfectly, neither undercutting it nor contradicting it, and offers up a flawless reason for Otto's survival. After Spider-Man and May took off, Hammerhead got his flat top stuck in a computer, whilst Ock hid in a safety bunker, wrapping himself up in his arms for double the protection. Ock washed up ashore, but with his arms now permanently welded to his body. It's as good a reason as any as to how he survived. Still, it's rather stupid of Otto to then admit to Peter that he has returned to New York to re-establish my criminal empire. So either Otto doesn't think Peter is any kind of threat to his plans, despite now being able to testify that Otto admitted to being a criminal, or he plans to kill him. Hmm, can't imagine that going down well with May. Speaking of May, that's as may be, but Otto has other problems. The ghost of Hammerhead suddenly appears, promising to kill Otto for killing him. The ghost is also visible to Peter and May, and Otto sweeps May up in his arms as she faints. He swears to protect her, which he does by smashing his way through her wall and taking her away from Hammerhead. For those keeping count, this is the second time Otto has destroyed May's wall, the first being in issue 57. I don't know if it's a coincidence or a callback, but it's cool either way. I mean, not for May, obviously. For May, it's a pain in the arse. Peter switches to Spider-Man and pursues, but ends up crashing through the window of a lovely young woman, busy painting her nails. She sicks her dog on Spider-Man. It's these delightful moments that make a Spider-Man story, the little things in life that just get on our nerves. We've all been there. He's the hero that could be you, remember? The chase continues through a New York that seems curiously deserted. So let's once again stop for a moment and take a look at the Marvel Universe's peculiar relationship with time. This story opens with Spidey looking for the Spider-Mobile in the Hudson River. It's dark, so it must be night time. This issue came out in March of 1976, so it could conceivably be dark around 738 o'clock at night. However, we then cut to Harry leaving his therapy session, and the narration implies that this is happening concurrently. Again, this could be an evening session, finishing at around 8pm, but then Ock arrives at May's again concurrently. Peter arrives at May's an hour later, so let's call it 9, 9.30. 1. Peter really gets greasy, fat-laden chicken at gone nine at night and then shares it with may ignoring the dietary habits of young students and their elderly relatives for the city that never sleeps there is a distinct dearth of people on the streets otto also never connects spider-man showing up so quickly with peter despite back in issue 12 otto unmasking spider-man to reveal peter's face 
fight continues, bouncing around the streets of New York, and Otto gains the upper hand, throwing Spidey to the hard concrete floor below. He is quickly set upon by a gang of random people. No, these aren't crooks. These are normal people, men who see this as an opportunity to collect the reward for Spider-Man put out by the Daily Bugle. Again, not crooks. Do the American public regularly turn into bloodthirsty mobs and attack someone, especially someone with superpowers? I mean, it's nice to see some people on the streets, I guess. Maybe not these people, but, you know. Spider-Man chucks off his burden and continues his pursuit, locating Octo as he climbs the Pan Am building. This is now the MetLife building and located in Midtown Manhattan. Fortune smiles upon Otto as a helicopter is just about to land. Spidey curses Otto's look, but can do nothing but watch as Otto pulls the passengers out of the way, a senator and his secretary, apparently just about to jet off for a night of illicit passion, and orders the pilot to ascend. Spider-Man fires a web that just manages to latch on the underside of the chopper, but the pilot notices the extra weight. Otto knows exactly what that extra weight is, and he snips the web line, causing Spider-Man to plummet to the ground. This is a remarkably fun issue, despite being essentially a long chase scene. Otto is always good value, and his relationship with May, despite the ick factor, humanises it. Spider-Man is largely on the back foot all the way through, but that makes for a neat story. Spidey being unable to attack Otto outright, as he has May as a hostage. Overall, this was a great read, and the story continues into issue 158, with a cover by Gil Kane and John Romita. Otto is throttling Spider-Man as the ghostly form of Hammerhead looms over May, threatening to kill her. Again, it's fine. This isn't really a run of inspired covers. There's nothing inherently bad about any of them. They're just, well, they're what the comic's wrapped up in. Hammerhead is Out is written by Ween, drawn by Andrew, with inks by Mike Ospazito, the latter of whom do an excellent job with the first three pages, which, as one would expect, is Spider-Man extricating himself from his predicament. He fashions a hang glider from his webbing and, despite having no experience using such a device, manages to use wind currents and downdrafts to steer himself back towards New York City. Some notes. Spider-Man makes out that hang gliding is somewhat new, and I suppose, as a recreational activity, he's quite correct, although the gliders have been in use since the 1850s. I was being facetious, remarking on Spidey's gliding abilities. He does mention through thought balloons that he's winging it. Quite literally, although Ween himself missed on that gag. The art in this opening sequence is really stunning, and it's a thoroughly satisfying conclusion to the cliffhanger. In true Spider-Man fashion, his landing is quite undignified, his inexperience landing him in a garbage bin. At home, Peter takes to listening to the police band, in an effort to locate Ock whilst repairing his costume. Peter's lack of competence as a seamstress raises a smile. And it's worth noting his apartment is still very spartan, consisting of a chair, a radio and a rug. He doesn't even have a TV. He's interrupted by not one but two beautiful models dropping by for a visit. First, new neighbour Glory Grant, who pops by with a freshly made cake. And then Mary Jane, who wants to know why Peter is now looking for his aunt, whose house now has an extra doorway. Again, as per the later retcon, if Mary Jane doesn't know Peter is Spider-Man, what does she think he can do about this? This was an interesting moment, because once again we have our everyman hero, the hero that could be you, remember, hanging out with two stunningly beautiful fashion models. And this isn't hyperbole. Mary Jane and Glory have both earned money as models. I wish I'd had Parker look this bad when I was younger. Whilst the ladies talk about clothes and jewellery, Peter gets a phone call from Robbie Robertson, telling him to get down to the Bugle ASAP. Peter strips down to his tighty whities sadly not as a prelude for fun and frolics with the two hotties in his apartment, but simply to put his Spider-Man costume on and leaves the girls to chat. This scene only cements my belief that I went into in episode 199 that Glory should have become friendly with Mary Jane and become a proper addition to the cast. Peter heads to the bugle. What follows is a cute scene. 
Robbie tells Peter that KJ Clayton has bought the Daily Globe, the Bugle's main competition, and he's been headhunting employees. Robbie wonders if Peter has been approached yet, to which the answer is no. Now I know what you're thinking, and you're right. There's nothing imparted here that Robbie couldn't have told Peter over the phone, you're thinking. Well, yes, that's correct, lovely listener, but the scene serves two purposes. It's also to show that Jonah is struggling to find a secretary since Betty Brandt left. This poor girl, who looks like Deborah Whitman's younger sister, is harried and harassed by Jonah, being Jonah, who isn't making it better. This latter subplot is setting up a future life-changing event for Glory Grant, but the former won't be addressed for years, the K.J. Clayton storyline finally concluding four years hence in issue 210, a story I have already covered in my Denny O'Neill week. Again, go and check it out, true believer. Peter being here also allows him to overhear that Doc Ock has been spotted at Brookhaven Labs, and so he makes his excuses and leaves. A Spider-Man. So, with the preamble over and even more subplots set up, it's time for action. Doc Ock has the lab located in Long Island locked down. Its research into atomic energy means that SWAT, currently surrounding the building, can't just storm in, lest they blow something up real good, or get Otto's hostage, one May Parker, killed. Otto, meanwhile, is here to rid himself of Hammerhead finally and forever, by trapping the stalking ghost in a particle accelerator and reducing him to nothing but ash. Or whatever the equivalent of ash a ghost would be. Spider-Man initially fouls up this plan, but after four pages of fight, he then agrees to help Otto. However, it backfires. Hammerhead wanted to be put into the particle accelerator, as it has had the unforeseen side effect, well, unforeseen by our heroes anyway, of reanimating him. Okay. Hammerhead isn't very bright. That much has been established in earlier issues. However, here he outsmarts both Peter Parker, boy genius, and Otto Octavius, nuclear physicist, by figuring out that the particle MacGuffin can restore him to life. This does not paint our hero and our villain in a good light. The fight is visually dynamic, but otherwise by the numbers, down to the old Spider-Man webs ox glasses routine. Spider-Man doesn't really have a plan, initially destroying the Accelerator's equipment despite knowing what it can do and what it costs. It should be noted he's not destroying Otto's equipment here, but the city's. He's rather reactive overall, displaying no real invention or strategy. I mean, he's never been the best strategist, but he seems particularly stupid here, which I presume we can put down to concern over May. Overall, though, another hugely enjoyable issue and middle chapter to the trilogy. Issue 159 wraps it all up with a cover by Joan Romita and Gil Kane, according to the official index of the Marvel Universe. Hammerhead smashes through Ock and Spidey, toppling them like ten pins. Arm in arm in arm in arm in arm in arm with Dr. Octopus is the title. They really don't make them like that anymore. Hammerhead faces off against Otto and Spidey and fight happens. Spidey is really stupid trying to punch Hammerhead in his flat top. You know, the flat top that is actually steel. Clues in the name, Spidey. Hammerhead follows this up by headbutting Spider-Man in the gut. Dr. Octopus furs a little better, using his arms to gain the upper hands, but when Spidey jumps in, all three combatants end up passing out due to the multiple blows suffered by all. Whilst this opening is humorous, it's very dumb. Spider-Man never once thinks to step back, leap to a ceiling and web Hammerhead up. No, he punches him directly in the spot of least weakness. What a dummy. Hammerhead's goons swoop in to pick up the boss. How the spectral form of Hammerhead picked up a phone, called these guys and told them exactly when to be there is something we're not told. A massive gunfight ensues between Hammerhead's men and SWAT, with SWAT using anaesthetic bullets. I'm sorry, but this is bollocks. I hate the Punisher using mercy bullets, and I hate SWAT using anaesthetic bullets. 
Bullets show no mercy, and they don't simply knock people out. They kill, maim, and cause irreparable damage to a body, and showing them as harmless is irresponsible. If you're going to show guns, you need to show the correct usage of those weapons and their effect. It also neuters your story. Aunt May is under no threat here when Hammerhead puts a gun to her head. They're just anaesthetic bullets, right? Nevertheless, Hammerhead takes May and Otto and Spider-Man are forced to form an uneasy alliance to retrieve her. We've been down the enemy of my enemy is my friend road before, but it is fun to see Ock and Spider-Man have to work together and for each of them to realise that the other possesses a genius level intellect. It's doubly fun when, over in subplot land, J. Jonah Jameson, now with a new secretary, sees Ock and Spider-Man speed past his window. Jameson scenes have frequently been one of the highlights of the Ween run, and this is no different. Although I do wonder if the sitcom Murphy Brown nicked the secretary gag from here. In a further subplot, a shadowy figure works with a tall, muscular man named Toy and a Caucasian smoking a cigarette holder in the recreation of the Spidermobile. More on this later. Meanwhile, Otto and Spidey launch their offensive on Hammerhead's HQ. Apparently, Hammerhead was too stupid to find somewhere new, something that would have prevented our dynamic duo from finding him, and instead holed up in an old nightclub that Spider-Man already knows the location of. It's a bit lazy. Anyway, the attack is a fun action beat, with May Parker showing her teeth, and Spider-Man trapped in a revolving office. But it's left to Otto to sort out Hammerhead. Hammerhead flees in a high-tech helicopter. Not that one. And escape Otto thwarts with some well-placed trash cans, which he hurls at the rotor blades. Hammerhead plunges into the Hudson, his helicopter exploding as it hits the water, because that's how helicopters work. I didn't see the point of resurrecting Hammerhead last issue, if you're going to kill him here. Other than we are but one page away from the end, which, the law of comics states, means everything needs wrapping up. Otto's vengeance against Spider-Man is interrupted by the arrival of the police, and Spider-Man makes sure May is okay before leaving himself. Now don't get me wrong, these are good comics, enjoyable comics. In the words of the indie rock band The Sundays, these stories were a good read, they were dumb as well. But there isn't as much here to unpack as there was back in Stan's day. Stan's scattershot approach to the form, his multiple collaborators all bringing their own thing to the table, the times they were written and the character dynamics, all these things and more made the work Lee and his team produced somehow deeper, more interesting. Stories that are arguably better plotted and written aren't necessarily as fun to examine. This three-part story is a case in point. It's perfectly fine, huge fun to read, highly enjoyable even, very well drawn. But there's something missing. There are no appearances by Peter Parker or his supporting cast this issue, which I understand is due to the breakneck nature of the story, but I miss them. Aunt May also doesn't do a lot. She gives Hammerhead a bit of lip and faints. Presumably, this will be but a blip on our Teflon-coated ant, who seems to take being kidnapped by supervillains as an everyday occurrence. Again, it's not bad, but it's not top tier. But let's press on, shall we? The Omnibus here takes a break to publish Amazing Spider-Man Annual 10 from 1976, written by Bill Mantlo from a plot by Len Wein and drawn by Gil Kane, Frank Gaiacoya and Mike Esposito, with a cover by Kane and John Romita. Double-sized dynamite is promised, as Spider-Man tackles a sensational new villain for the life of J. Jonah Jameson, the Human Fly. Sadly, it's not Brundlefly. Rather, the fly is resplendent in green and yellow, and he leaps in for Jonah, who is bound and trapped in a web. Did Spider-Man put Jonah in the web? Because I don't think flies spin webs. Anyway, our hero swings in, presumably to save the day in true Mighty Mouse fashion. The story is broken up into chapters for the first time in a long time. Step into my parlour is part one, said the spider to the fly, is part two. 
On the face of it, this is a rehash of a prior story. In this case, the story of the Scorpion, all the way back from Amazing Spider-Man issue 20. The plot, such as it is, follows J. Jonah Jameson, who is losing sales to the globe, now under the ownership of media mogul K.J. Clayton. All of this was established previously, tying this annual into current continuity. Jonah's answer to this predicament is to approach Harlan Stilwell, the brother of Farley Stilwell, to do what his brother did and create a super-powered being, this time a hero, rather than the villain Farley created. It's nice to see that in times of crisis, Jonah's go-to manoeuvre is still to do something illegal. Harlan, who by pure coincidence was already working on something in this area, takes Jonah's money. Jonah is on really shaky ground here, as he has been in every story of this type. He's funded the creation of spider slayers and other super-powered beings, like the Scorpion and now the Fly, all to further a personal agenda, and in most cases, all have ended with a death that was, at least inadvertently, Jonah's responsibility. Both Stillwell brothers die as a result of their involvement with Jonah, as does the spider slayer creator Spencer Smythe. And there's no way I buy that Jonah isn't at least partially aware that Stillwell is a wrongan, given he resides in a seedy Riverside apartment. Well, it was seedy in 1976. It's probably been gentrified and now costs a fortune to live there. The opening is pretty good, though. It's a hostage situation, and Gil Kane brings his usual dynamism to the art and layout, and his drinking game status is assured with a number of up-the-nostril shots and at least two occurrences of his patented bad guy is punched towards the reader in a back-breaking position panels. Spider-Man helps the police out with said hostage situation that leads to a small-time criminal, Richard Deacon, coincidentally being the one to end up at Stillwell's gaff and being given the powers of the fly. If you sit back and examine it for a moment, these are three massive leaps of luck in the space of half an issue. Jonah visits Stillwell, who just happens to be working on something that is similar to what Jonah needs, just as a criminal who Spider-Man just happened to encounter happens upon Stillwell all within an hour of each other. Sometimes you just got to shrug and say, it's comics, Jake. There's also a couple of other noticeable goofs in this story. Number one, on page 19, Jonah takes a call from Stillwell. In the dialogue, he asks Robbie to leave so he can take the call. But in the art, Robbie sits at the same desk and doesn't move throughout. Hmm, we haven't seen that kind of goof since Stan was on the book. I'll come to the other later. In response to the call, Jonah heads over to Stillwell's to find him dead. Jonah's reaction is that Stillwell's death isn't important, only that no one connects this to J. Jonah Jameson. This does not paint Jonah in a good light. It's like poetry. It rhymes. The fly attacks Jonah, calling him Dad, which was amusing, I admit. The fly then buzzes over to the bugle to tell Robbie and Peter, who happens to be there, to get Spider-Man to meet him at the Coliseum at midnight for a mano a mano fight. The entirety of New York seems to show up for the fight, although in a nice touch, the cops from the hostage situation earlier now seem to appreciate Spider-Man and don't just want his head. The police and the public all seem to know about the fly, that he's kidnapped Jonah, and that he's really Rick Deacon, that he was the kidnapper, and this is a grud match after Spider-Man thwarted his scheme earlier. I can only assume Robbie published a special edition of the paper, or... Given Marvel's sliding timeline, he updated the website for this many people to be aware of what is happening so quickly. The fight itself is pretty nifty. Spider-Man basically allows the fly to get the upper hand to lead him to Jonah, where Spidey learns that this was all Jonah's fault. In a nice moment, Spidey considers cutting Jonah loose. This was his mess, let him deal with it. He doesn't go through with the thought because he's Peter Parker, but it's a realistic character beat that he considered it. Peter has done this before, considered why he should tidy up other people's messes, but he still does it because it's who he is, and it's very relatable. 
The second noticeable goof occurs here, though. Now, remember a few minutes ago when I mentioned that there was a second noticeable goof? Well, I'm glad that you were paying attention, because here's where I point out what that goof is. Spider-Man tells the fly he's going to jail for the murder of Harlan Stilwell. But Spider-Man has no way of knowing who Stilwell is, or what he had to do with the creation of the fly, or indeed, that the fly even murdered him. To add insult to injury here, the editor or writer spotted this goof, and instead of fixing it, offered a no prize to a reader to explain Marvel's way out of it. This is not cricket. To not notice a mistake, and then have a reader write in with a plausible reason for why that isn't a mistake, is a time-honoured Marvel tradition. And the no prize was very fun in its time. To spot a mistake as the writer-editor of the book, and then not even be bothered to fix it, is phenomenally lazy storytelling. Anyway, with Jonah located, Spider-Man takes off the kid gloves and lets the fly have it. The story closes with a comedy beat of Jonah refusing to publish Peter's pictures of the fight with the fly as it embarrasses him. Overall, this isn't a bad read. Kane's art is as fun as ever and it fur jogs along. I don't think there was any need to retell Amazing Spider-Man 20, but if we were going to do it, at least they did it well. Jonah is culpable in a man's death, but that's laughed off at the end, whereas there was a more interesting story to tell here. Jonah and Stilwell didn't invite Deacon to be the fly. He forced Stilwell to perform the operation. Jonah could argue that all he was doing was trying to create a new Captain America, and Deacon forced himself into the situation. Still, Jonah should have felt a small pang of guilt. As it is... He comes across here as a callous coward. The issue closes with a plug for Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man, issue number one. As for Amazing Spider-Man 160, the next issue we'll be looking at, Len Wein, Ross Andrew and Mike Esposito are all still on writer and artist duties. My killer, the car, has a cover whereby Spider-Man's powers are failing as the Spider-Mobile climbs the wall to kill him. The mysterious figures from last issue monitor via view screen. My Mother the Car was a little remembered sitcom from the late 1960s and is generally considered to be one of the worst TV shows in history. This isn't that, but it is one of the silliest Spider-Man stories ever, crossing that fine line from funny into camp quite frequently. It starts with Spider-Man happening upon a theft of expensive fur coats, which is a crime we really doesn't hear much about nowadays. During this felonious fur napping, Spider-Man is gassed. It isn't made clear if it was the fur nappers or some other nerd do well, but the upshot is our hero is out for the count and attacked by his car. In an incredibly contrived moment, the automobile atrocity has somehow nullified our hero's wall-crawling ability and his web shooters, because Len Wein clearly knows that without these advantages, this confrontation would be over in one page. The gas does not seem to nullify his spider strength, and he manages to escape. As per the formula, we cut to the subplots. Also as per the formula, one is wrapping up loose ends, May being in hospital following the events of the three-part Ock Hammerhead storyline, and one is all new. The former first, as this is more interesting. Mary Jane and Peter visit May, and May seems to think Mary Jane and Peter are in this for the long haul. She's right, although it took them a while to get there. Harry and Liz are visiting May as well, and they too seem to be an item. This is probably Len's biggest contribution to the strip, and Liz and Harry would remain a thing in the series to this day. I mean, they've split up and had a kid and got back together and all kinds of other shenanigans, but it's still a thing. The second subplot is another interlude with one of Jonah's secretaries. Spoiler, she lasts as long as the last two, before he receives a package with some photos in. Photos that mean Spider-Man is finished. It'll be nearly a year before this one's wrapped up. Anyway, it turns out that the terrible tinkerer 
Remember him? Is behind the Spider-Mobile going all Christine on Spider-Man. And his aide is the large man called Toy we saw previously. We still don't know who hired him though, as that's a subplot for another day and episode. It transpires that the Tinkerer wasn't an alien being, as hinted that way back in issue 2, the last time we saw the Tinkerer, well done if you remembered that, but a regular guy who makes tech for villains and sells it to them. Whoever hired him to kill Spider-Man offered the Tinkerer a massive payday to bring him out of retirement. Spider-Man ultimately wraps it all up, literally in one case, as he webs Toy up, although we don't learn if he calls the police on them. Really, unless he's willing to press charges, the police have nothing to arrest the Tinkerer for. Spider-Man can't prove they did this, nor can they prove any of the other incidents the Tinkerer may or may not have been responsible for. Not really. It's the ending, though, that leaves a sour taste in the mouth. Spider-Man returns the Spider-Mobile to the offices of Carter and Lombardo by webbing it up and leaving it outside their window. On the 14th floor. The problem with this is... Once the webbing dissolves, that car is going to careen to the sidewalk below, killing anyone underneath. Good job, Spidey. As I say, it's all a bit campy and over the top. It has its funny moments, but this reads like a comedy episode of a normally serious show. But the writers aren't really comedy writers, so they lean too far into it to beat us over the head that this is funny. It's fluff. It's enjoyable fluff, but fluff nevertheless. The letters page to this issue finally spells out that the Spider-Sense reacts to imminent danger, wherever this danger is coming from, be it a car speeding at Peter as he jaywalks, an attack by the Sandman, or if he's about to stub his toe. It does not allow him to follow danger, seek danger out, or track people down, unless those people have a Spider-Tracer in their pocket. Remember that. We'll see if Marvel stick to it. Overall, another enjoyable, if inconsequential, bag of issues. We'll take a short break and promo somebody else's podcast, and then I'll be right back with your emails. Imagine a podcast that celebrates the things we love. Why spend time being so angry and cynical about our fandoms? Join me, the Irredeemable Shag, for a show where we're just trying to be happy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast. Our discussions focus on a variety of geeky subjects that we're passionate about. While the topics will be ever-changing, our focus will be on science fiction, comic books, what it means to be a geek in this world, and other nostalgia-fueled ideas. Life is short. Focus on the positive. Find your joy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Okay, let's delve deep into the sack of email. I don't know what sack you were thinking of. Can't do anything about your minds. And we have quite a few, quite a few in uh, response to recent episodes, which is always lovely. I will not have time to get through these six emails that I have. Six! Blimey. It's very nearly double figures, kind of, almost, sort of. Uh, first of all, let's cover the Bond ones, and then we'll move on to uh, Battlestar Galactica next time. Nathaniel Wayne has emailed in. Well, hello there, Andy. Hello! Sorry I've been out of touch for so long. Well, try and not make a habit of it. You'd think being self-employed would give me more free time. But I'm sorry to report that my boss is a bit of a bastard. (laughs) See what you did there. Anyways, I couldn't ignore the confluence of my recently having watched No Time to Die and your release of a full ranking of the Bond films. Now, full disclosure, I haven't seen every Bond film but I have seen some of every Bond, and I feel like our different opinions could best be summed up by swapping the general outlook of Craig and Brosnan. I ready admit my love of Brosnan is partly nostalgic, as Goldeneye was the first Bond film I saw from start to finish. But I still think it's quintessential Bond, updated just the right amount. 
world is not enough, I tend to be something of an apologist for, effectively arguing that the good bits are great and the bad bits aren't any worse than the bad bits of any other Bond film. I'm not about to defend Christmas Jones, but I challenge anybody to explain to me why she's any worse than, say, Holly Goodhead. She isn't, and I did, I did try, perhaps I didn't succeed over much, to say that I don't think Denise Richards is the world is not enough's problem. Like you say, she's no more ridiculous than Holly Goodhead, or, or any number of other Bond femme fatales that he may come across during his travels. My problem with The World Is Not Enough is it's trying to say something about the psychology of Bond. This is my, my main thing, my main takeaway with the Brosnan era as I see it now, post-Daniel Craig. And that is that the Brosnan era wanted to be the light, fluffy, entertaining fun that Roger Moore was, whilst also still trying to psychoanalyse Bond in some way, like the Craig era does. And those two don't really gel. Because Brosnan... Brosnan's a fine actor, I have no problem with Pierce Brosnan. I just don't think he was the Bond for that material. Like I said in the review, he's very much Roger Moore with a little bit of Sean Connery's panache in there. But he's quite a lightweight Bond. And doing those psychological examinations of him don't really work with Pierce Brosnan's Bond, who doesn't seem particularly tortured. In contrast to Daniel Craig's Bond, who is very much a postmodern Bond, who's quite tortured by this gig of being a spy. Now, I understand why a lot of people wouldn't like Craig because of that, but I personally felt that was a refreshing change on what had come in the 40 years beforehand. I mean, now I'm ready for a change again, and we'll, we'll see where it goes. We continue with the email. Tomorrow Never Dies, as you noted, has aged surprisingly well. Die another day, I'll give you, is a bit rubbish. But I chalk it up as fun 90s nonsense. And yes, I know it was released in 2002, but the vibe is pure 90s. Overall, though, my love of Brosnan in the role makes me more than happy to revisit any of these. Yeah, Die Another Day is not very good at all, but there's a soft spot for it because my son Michael, it was the first one he saw in the cinema. So he, he has this massive soft spot for Die Another Day. Uh, even with the caveat that he knows it's not very good. Now, Craig, on the other hand, he's fine. Honestly, I don't have a big problem with him. But the thing is, since he rides closer to neutral for me, that means his movies don't get the boost by his presence that Brosnan manages. And as a result, I judge the films on the merits of the story and overall execution, where it has been a mixed bag at best. Casino Royale is good, but it's a strangely constructed film, as it's basically a trilogy of films rammed into a single movie with brutally clear demarcation points. Everything up to preventing the plane explosion, everything at the casino, everything in Venice. But that's what I like about it. It's the three-act structure of Casino Royale is, as you say, you can pretty much stop the film at those three acts and make a three-part television episode out of them. But where you seem to see that as a negative, I see that as a positive, that they didn't split Casino Royale up into a trilogy, which would probably be the temptation nowadays, that they just tell it all in one movie. And I think every part of Casino just works. I just gen I love it. The fact that it's it's got those clear demarcation points just shows it's a three-act movie. These are the three acts. I don't have a problem with that. And I think that's why Casino Royale works me as well as it does. Quantum may honestly be the best example of shoddy cinematographer and acting murdering the entire film. This doesn't happen to me often because I'm a story person first and foremost, but so help me, I want to get my hands on the camera and the editor and make them battle in the arena for my amusement as I plan to feed the winner to a lion, because dear God, it is unforgivably bad to look at and try to follow. I remember in the theatre checking my watch every time an action scene started, which was too often in the first place, because it meant another two to four minutes of not knowing what the hell was happening. That is not an invalid criticism of Quantum. Certainly, the first 40 minutes, it just lurches from action beat to action beat, and you don't really get your handle on what the story is until halfway through. And even then... There's a little element with Quantum of, well, what the hell's this got to do with James Bond? But, as I said, 
whilst the shaky cam is irritating in places, I just enjoy watching Quantum. I think it's one of those places... Craig seems the most relaxed in Quantum of any of them. Not he's most settled into the role, that's Skyfall. But he seems quite relaxed. He almost seems like he's enjoying himself in Quantum. And he was in danger of seeing like he doesn't enjoy himself in most of them. But in Quantum, he'd actually... And I think Quantum's quite funny. Again, I said in that episode, Daniel Craig has a very different sense of humour to the previous people who played Bond. He's not so much the, the cringe-worthy double entendre dad gags and more sarcastic and dark in his humour. And as someone who is, is a fan of that kind of humour, I, I find Craig to be very funny. But that's just me. Skyfall made up for a lot of the sins, but then Spectre went and recommitted a whole new batch of them. Spectre is a special kind of pain for me because the first hour is honestly brilliant. On that we agree. But halfway through, basically when Madeline Swan shows up, the whole thing starts falling apart. To be clear, that's not her fault, though I don't think she works for how much of the film banks on the idea of them having a genuine love affair. It's just how the timing worked out. Yeah, Madeline comes across as a bit of a cold fish, Inspector. If they could have had that chemistry that they're having no time to die, Inspector, I'd have bought that relationship a lot more. And then no time to die. Well, it basically ported all of the problems of Spectre and slapped a mediocre villain whose full motives I never grasped on top of it again. I don't really disagree with that. I think No Time to Die would have been much better if they'd swapped those two roles and Blofeld had been the villain again. Because bringing him back for Spectre and then just dismissing him summarily in No Time to Die, I didn't get behind that. But for the most part, I love No Time to Die. I'm still not sure about the ending. As for the rest, well, my thoughts just down to strong, I guess. Goldfinger is Connery's best. For Your Eyes Only is Moore's best. Both had their ups and downs. I've only seen License to Kill for Dalton. It's not really a Bond film as much as an 80s drug thriller. Again, though, I see that as a positive. Because there are times when there is no, there's no problem at all whatsoever with throwing away the formula for one of the films. Honor Majesty's Secret Service did it, and then they were scared to do it again until License to Kill. And then Brosnan doesn't really throw away the formula. And then Daniel Craig does by kind of not having a formula. So it is what it is. And then Paul Lazenby continues. I know Honor Majesty's Secret Service has gotten a crit. And then Paul Lazenby we continue. I know Honor Majesty's Secret Service has gotten a critical reassessment. But it's just got a few too many of Bond's unsavory elements. It takes 90 seconds to go from Tracy being slapped across the face by Bond to them making out. Plus her father literally tries to pimp her out to Bond because a good deep dicking will sort her out emotionally, apparently. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with any of that. I think some of the, the borderline sexism of some of the Bonds is played humorously. And you get away with it because Bond is a sexist. He just is. Daniel Craig has said in interviews, it's a part of his character. And he says it's not his job to analyse the character. It's his job to play the character as his. And Bond has a problem with women. That's just the way it is. Um, and sometimes with Connery, he kind of let it go because there's a nod and a wink to it, even though Connery has his own issues. And sometimes there's like in Thunderball where you're like, is this borderline rape? And then there's Honor Majesty's Secret Services where, yeah, that's a little bit uncomfortable. But... You know, again, it is what it is. The edit, the action editing is pretty bad in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. We continue. Not quantum bad, but pretty bad. See, I think the action sequences in Secret Service are great. But, you know, whatever. Anyways, I don't know what to expect from Bond at this point. Another reboot, I suppose. If I were in charge, I'd say the best way to distinguish it from the reboot that happened with Craig is to make it a period series set in the 60s and put the character back in the Cold War where he's best suited. But, of course, I'm not in control of major studios. Well, at least not until Operation Holding One is properly underway. Then they'll see. They'll all see. <laughs> anyway, hope you're doing well. Cheers to you and the fam. Geekly love you. They got that bit wrong. Geekly yours, Nathaniel Wayne. She, they, Council of Geeks. Well, yes, thank you, Nathaniel. We are doing very well. I hope you are too. Well, I see from your videos that you are. So that's nice to know, isn't it? Uh, thank you for that, as ever. Thought-provoking, challenging, opinionated, didn't agree with everything, but lovely to hear it. 
Uh, next, Matt Prather, Bond. James Bond. Hey, Andrew. Hello, Matt. Liked your ranking of the Bond films. I enjoyed the Sean Connery films, but kind of dropped off after the series after watching a Roger Moore executed judo chop. Just didn't resonate with me. Did see some of the later films and enjoyed them, and the actors portraying the titular hero. I feel like I have a Roger Moore-sized hole in my Bond knowledge. Sadly, I don't think I'll have it in me to change that. I have to admit I was completely enthralled by the Saint television series, so I can't really put a finger on my Sir Roger hang-up. But I don't have to. I have likewise abandoned other properties if some aspects didn't quite resonate with me. It's only as a gruesome wisdom that I'm giving some of these things a second chance. Some of it has been transcendent on second look, some not so much. That being said, I was wondering if you had any piece of entertainment you initially dismissed, but ran across later and enjoyed. The second Darren on Bewitched, perhaps. The news radio seasons after Phil Hartman passed away. Van Halen after Roth left. As always, thank you for sharing. You make the world a little less crappy, leaving the world a little better than you found it. Pretty awesome. Thanks, Matt Prather. Well, thank you, Matt. I think, ultimately, I'm quite touched, but also, that's all any of us could do. That's all any of us should be doing. You know, it sometimes feel a bit frivolous doing shows like this when the world is what it is at the moment and when there are certain people who are in charge of certain countries who feel that they shouldn't be leaving the world in a better place and in fact they should be making a god almighty mess of it. But then there are other times where you think that this kind of thing keeps your mind off it for a few hours and that's not a bad thing, is it? So thank you very much. Uh, I don't know that a piece of entertainment I initially dismissed but ran across later and enjoyed probably Stargate. You know, I didn't think much of the Stargate movie and I gave the TV show a bit of a go and then went away. But then later on, I caught odd episodes of the shows and I never knew which one because I was completely out of the Stargate loop. So I know there was Stargate and there was Stargate Atlantis and there was a couple of others, but there wasn't about four Stargate shows at one point. And I'd catch episodes of the different shows and go, this is actually quite good. But I never never glommed onto it. I never watched them all. So that's where you have a Roger Moore hole in your knowledge, I have a Stargate hole in my knowledge. So maybe that's something I should find. But it's just so intimidating, isn't it? There was, what, four shows. And if they all ran for like five seasons, and I know one of them ran for ten, five seasons of 22 episodes is at least 110 episodes. So that must mean there's at least 200 episodes of the core show. Who has that kind of time anymore? Not me. That's for certain. In comics, probably Conan comes to mind. I didn't read a lot of Conan as a kid. Didn't have enough superheroes in it. But then as I got older and started moving away from superheroes, I started going, oh, this Conan thing's got lots of cool stuff in it. So I'm Howard the Duck. I didn't appreciate Howard the Duck either. Anyway, uh, one last more. When was the first You're a Dinosaur Bond speech? Uh, it's from Robert McCarthy. It shows up in most Roger Moores, right? No, it is never brought up in a single Roger Moore Bond film, uh, as far as I can recall, that he's a misogynistic dinosaur. As far as I recall, it was Pierce Brosnan's first one, Goldeneye. I, I am ready to be stand corrected or sit corrected. If somebody can uh, point out otherwise. But I believe that's it. Anyway. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for emailing in. If you did so. It was lovely to hear from you Rob, Matt and Nathaniel. Um, hope you'll join us for the next show. Not got a clue what it is. But you know that's the joy of this. I take my pop culture muse. Wherever I'm finding my joy. To quote Shag Matthews. You too can email in at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com and I continue to fervently hope that it's all going to be okay. We'll see. I'll see you all next time. Goodbye.